We weren't here last week. Uh, I got to enjoy the weekend last week at Larry Creek with our youth group, and uh, Tony and Andrew are doing a great job. We had a great time spending time together. So I wasn't here last Sunday, but rumor has it that you guys witnessed something that is only folklore. Jim Baird finished the Sermon on the Mount. Is that true? That's unheard of. And I, I should have listened to the tape to verify this, but we often make fun of Jim because he rarely gets through the Sermon on the Mount, and that's actually a good thing. Aren't we blessed? Uh, you could listen to Jim talk about the Sermon on the Mount for years. Uh, there is so much great material, and Jim does such a good job working through that. So he finished that up so we can move through Matthew chapter 8, but you can't you can't turn to Matthew 8 and just forget about the sermon you've heard. Because the remarkable thing about Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and this sermon that Jesus gives, is that it serves as something as an inaugural address for a king. We see this in our country, in our culture. We elect a new president. He or one day she stands up. And we'll give an inaugural address. And in that address, they're saying, this is what my administration is setting out to do. This is how we're going to define ourselves." And for the Gospel of Matthew, that's kind of how the Sermon on the Mount works. Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is the king we've been waiting for. He starts with the genealogy. He shows up in Matthew chapter 2, and the Magi come up and they say, where's the one that's supposed to be born king of the Jews? They grab their Bibles and glance back to the Old Testament to find out where the king is supposed to be born. Jesus is baptized in Matthew chapter 3, comes up out of the waters, and this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. Echoing the words of Psalm 2, which is a kingly decoration, Matthew has done everything he can to say, here's our king. And then Jesus ascends the mountain in Matthew chapter 5, and he gives this address. This is what my rule and reign, what my kingdom looks like. This, this is the law that we want to enact. This is who I want my people to be. And when you get to the end of Matthew chapter 7, something remarkable happens for any preacher. The sermon gets rave reviews. Last verse, Matthew chapter 7. When the people have heard Jesus speak, they conclude, they say, they were astonished at his teaching. He taught them as one having authority. Not like what they're used to hearing. Now, preachers can get up, any preacher can get up and preach an okay sermon. And they can say things the audience might like. They can say things to make the audience laugh or feel good about themselves. And any preacher can stand up and say things that, as the audience, you say, I, I kind of like that. But one of the hard things about preaching is when you have to stand up and say things people need to hear about how their life should be different or to challenge them. And mind you, the Sermon on the Mount is not some cotton candy sort of sermon. 
what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is tough stuff. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. If you look at a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery. If you hate your neighbor, you're not like God. If you hate for no purpose, then you're guilty of murder. No, you can't just divorce your wife for any reason. No, you can't just swear on the gold of the temple or something. You keep your word. And as Jim and I have tried to show you, the Sermon on the Mount is not for the faint-hearted. And yet, even at the close of that sermon, the audience review when they've got their table at Chili's and Cracker Barrel and they're reviewing the preacher's words, have you ever heard anything like that? I haven't. He preached without notes. And that's kind of what happens. Jesus is not referencing some rabbi or some rabbinic tradition. He's not saying now, according to rabbi so-and-so and such-and-such, who said back when, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. No notes. And as they're reflecting on what they've just heard, the crowd says, what do you do with a sermon like that? Now, what's really interesting about this turn is that Jesus leaves the mountaintop pulpit, if you will, and he steps out and begins to minister. And what I suggest to you is that Matthew is telling us this story in a way that we see the sermon enacted. That what Jesus begins to do when he leaves that mountain and goes out into the public, that the healings that unfold in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, there's a series of nine healing stories, that Matthew wants you to see what you've just heard. Seeing a sermon. We've all heard that phrase before, haven't you? I would rather see a sermon than what? Hear a sermon any day, right? Ten minutes into this and you're saying, I agree rather see a sermon than hear a sermon any day. And Matthew says, okay, follow me down the mountain. I want to show you what that sermon looks like in action. And so one of the things as you read through Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Matthew wants this word authority to continue ringing in your head. When he spoke, the crowd said, we've never seen someone speak with such authority. When he comes down from the mountain, one of the first people he engages is a man with leprosy. And the man with leprosy knows that Jesus has the authority to heal him. If you will, we'll talk about that in a second. If you will, you can heal me. You can make me whole. The leper sees the authority that the audience just heard. He goes to the centurion in the second healing story. And the centurion engages Jesus and he says, I too am a man under great authority. He uses the word. I speak and men come. And the centurion says, I know that if you just say the word, that it'll happen. The authority that the people heard, the centurion sees. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He has the authority to cast out this fever. The, the chapters unfold to where Jesus 
is in a boat and he calms the sea and the disciples' reaction is, what sort of person can speak that even the winds and the waves obey him? Matthew wants you to hear that authority still in action. Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus is speaking to a crowd and they bring in a paralytic, and Jesus wants them to know that the Son of Man has power on earth, authority to forgive sin. So as Matthew 7 closes and the sermon comes to an end, Matthew says they've heard the authority, let me show you the authority of the king. That's one of the reasons these miracles are here. That when Jesus says, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, as you read at the end of Matthew, Matthew wants you to know when he says all authority, he means all authority. Jesus has authority over physical ailments. Jesus has authority over the spiritual unseen forces. In the first century of the ancient world, the the winds, the waves, and nature was some untamable force, and Jesus tames it. Jesus sees demonic people, and he casts out the demons. Who can control those forces? And Matthew says, our king can. This is what the kingship of Jesus looks like. And when you come to the end of these miracle stories, by the way, at the end of Matthew chapter 9... As Jesus walks by these blind men, they call out, Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David, the language of the king. So before you leave the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew wants you to have in your ears ringing the authority of Jesus. Do we really believe that Jesus still has that kind of authority today? Or was that once upon a time in a land and in a time far, far from here? Does Jesus have authority over this church? Yeah, we have elders and, and deacons and ministers and great people, but whose authority leads this church? When we think about what we're doing, when we think about what we're supposed to be doing and where we should be going and how we should be interacting with each other and the community around us, who settles those questions? Who appeals to Jesus? Because Jesus has authority over everything. In your own life, when you make your plans and you you dream your dreams and you interact with people in your life, Who has authority to speak to the way you live? Because Matthew is saying Jesus has all authority. And if it was true then, he still has all authority. So that whenever you're worried or you're concerned or you're upset, who has the power to make that right? Matthew says, let me show you. Jesus has all authority. So, as the people on the Sermon on the Mount that heal that day have listened to that sermon and they walk away saying, we've we've never seen anyone, we've never heard anyone speak with that kind of authority, 
Matthew says they're not just words that's ringing out. This man is the kingdom of God among us. Do you realize how different the church will look if we accept the authority of Jesus over any other competing authority today? If we stand up and say, because Jesus is Lord... Well, why do you believe that? That's weird, because Jesus is Lord. Why do you live in such a strange way? Because Jesus is King. Why do you not do certain things? Because I follow a different King. Why do you not get so bent out of shape when the world follows a different authority? Because I've got a different authority. And Matthew wants to ask you, do you think he's King or not? And he walks us through to show us the king's authority. Now, Jim will often tell you after communion, after I make a communion thought or he makes a communion thought, he and I rarely sit down and and work together to say, hey, what are you preaching? I'll do a communion thought. We rarely do that. But he did it today again. This concept of what authority does to us and how we view authority. As you read this text... One of the things that I can't help but notice is when you hear someone say, I have all authority. Does that make you nervous? Because think about the way we see authority used today. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. We know those phrases. And so we're weary, we're concerned when we see someone with too much power in our world today. That's why the framers of our Constitution said we're going to have three branches of government. Why? So one of them doesn't get too much power. That way we can sue each other and drag each other through all sorts of stuff when we disagree. We keep people in check. Because we've all seen power abused. We've seen bosses who have too much authority, unchecked, who abuse the people who work for them and with them. We've seen that. We've seen judges take bribes and abuse their authority. We've seen rogue police officers at times harass and abuse innocent people. It's on the news. We see it on TV. And so when you read that Jesus has all authority, the next question becomes, what's he going to do with all that power? Because in Jesus' day, they were used to seeing corrupt people in power. They've seen it civil. It's been judges and and Nero's or emperors and people in Rome have abused power. The way Rome comes to power is because they exercise great power. And they abuse people. They've seen... The abuse of power with taxes. They've seen abuse of power with judges. They've seen religious people abuse their power. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And the scribes and Pharisees have made a mockery of power and authority. And so when Jesus comes along in Matthew and says, all authority. And Matthew says he is the king with all authority. You ask, what's he do with that power? And Matthew shows you. In the sermon, he told us how to treat each other. In the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed 
are the pure in heart and the meek and the peacemakers, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those are the ones in the kingdom of heaven will reverse the order of today and will bless those in the kingdom. He said all along, do unto others the way you would have done to you. And when he leaves the mountain, his first stop on the bottom of that pulpit is a man with leprosy. A man who is the type of outcast. No one wants anything to do with. No one ever wants to interact. In fact, the law in the, in the Old Testament says if you have leprosy, we're going to keep you away from people so it doesn't spread. And so lepers, as the story is, is they would have colonies, they would be outcasts. Social interaction was the worst part of leprosy to a lot of people. And Jesus comes down from the pulpit after telling people, love your neighbor, and after telling people that the blessed are those who are hurting and mourning and outcast. And he's come down from that pulpit after calling people to show the love of God. And his first stop, is a leper. And did you catch again how the leper asked, if you are willing, can you blame him for wondering if he would be willing? Because the leper had seen authority abused. The leper had seen people with power use it in the wrong way. Because the leper was all too familiar with stories such as a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho to pray. He fell among thieves. And then a, a priest and a Levi walk by and they do nothing to help him. Maybe the leper had opened the internet and opened the newspaper and read story of megachurch pastors caught up in the Me Too movement abusing women and abusing power, and he sees someone like Jesus who has all authority, and he says, look, I know you can do this if you want, if you want. Is Jesus the same kind of authority and king figure we've seen, or is he a different one? And Matthew says, watch, he's radically different. And he reaches out and he touches the man with leprosy. Don't miss the significance of that simple statement. This king with all this power and all this authority goes to the weakest, most vulnerable, most broken person in society and he touches him. You know why he does that? This is a totally different kind of king. That authority that you find at the end of Matthew 7 is an authoritative compassion when he heals the leper. He says, now go back and tell the priest. That kind of reminds us that one of the significant moments of this is that Jesus is restoring him back to a, a community. And wouldn't you love to have been there when he walks into the priest and says, hey, I've had, uh, I've had leprosy, I, I, I've been healed Give me the check over, give me the okay slip, because I'm going home. Priests had never seen that before. And can you imagine the first day this leper goes to the grocery store? 
and the whole community around him knows he used to be a leper. What are you doing here? Jesus. This is a different kind of king. This is a different kind of authority and power. In his Sermon on the Mount, he taught us to love those who are our enemies. To pray for those who despitefully use you. To go the extra mile. And in the very next story of Matthew chapter 8, there's a centurion. Now when Luke tells this story, it appears that this centurion may have been on a better relationship with the community than most average centurions may have been. But nevertheless, this is a centurion. He, he works for Rome. He's over the Roman military. And when he comes to Jesus and says, help me, how will Jesus use his authority? And Jesus is so moved with the compassion Jesus offers to go to his house. And the man says, all you have to do is speak. And your word will carry and heal. The people in Matthew 7 heard the sermon and said, that's great authority. The centurion of all people says, I know the power of your words. Is Jesus going to help this man or not? Because he's not a Jew. Because he works for Rome. He's a Gentile. He's the kind of people we love to hate. But Matthew says this is not the kind of king. Not the kind of authority you're accustomed to seeing. And Jesus heals the servant. That's what the sermon looks like. To find someone who's broken and hurting and desperate. And the one with all authority brings blessing. Isn't that how the sermon started? Blessed are those who mourn. All of these things, broken and hurting people that Jesus encounters, Matthew wants you to see that it was more than just fancy words in the Sermon on the Mount. This is the program of the kingdom of God. The last of the first three miracles is really interesting. It's Peter's mother-in-law. And when compared to the other two stories that's gone before, healing a leper, healing a centurion servant, Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know the woman. Text says nothing more about her. And from all readings of the text, it's, I mean, he, he cures her of a fever, and that in and of itself is important. 
And depending on Peter's relationship with his mother-in-law, it could be in an action of love your enemies. Who knows? But the most remarkable thing about that healing is how unremarkable it actually is. It's a woman of no standing and no power and no authority. Nothing that Jesus can trade off of. If I heal you, you can do this for me. There's none of that. Jesus heals a woman who in first century culture had no power. Why would a king with all authority have anything to do with someone of such low stature? Because this is not the normal kind of king. Because Jesus is enacting the Sermon on the Mount and loving those who are merciful and broken and hungry. You see, when you leave the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, bring your notes from that sermon with you. Because what you're going to see is the inaction of the kingdom. The merciful, all of those. That's the kind of king we're proclaiming. And that's the kind of kingdom we're enacting. Jesus teaches his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 to pray that prayer. Your will be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. Your kingdom come in that way. And what you and I witness in these stories is exactly that. That God's will is not for people to have leprosy. God's will is not for centurions to be hurting and their servants to be sick. God's will is not for mother-in-laws to have fever. And because Jesus is enacting God's will, he restores wholeness. It is the kingdom in action. So as you read through the text, Matthew wants you to see our king is not like any other king you've encountered. In the Jewish mind, the phrase Son of David was a kingly title. If you're in the class I was teaching in in Matthew a few weeks ago, when we covered this material, I pointed you to a text. It's Psalm 72. And if you thumb your way back to Psalm 72, you'll find a famous psalm that was sung in praise of the king of, of, of God's king, the true Son of David, who we want him to be. Just listen to a few verses. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to a king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May his foes bow down before him. Verse 12, he delivers the needy when they call the poor and those who have no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Matthew says you've been longing for 
and looking for and praying for God to send that king. He's here. Among us. Among the poor and the oppressed and the hurting. What he said in that inaugural speech was more than fancy talk. It is the true program of the kingdom of God. Because he is the king. If Jesus had retired after preaching the Sermon on the Mount, it would have no doubt gone down in history still as a remarkable message. Calling the people to do things no one had called them to do before. Living a life no one had ever lived before. And if Jesus had finished and left the audience in awe, they still might have concluded he speaks as one with authority. And had he ascended back to heaven at the conclusion of that sermon, it would have still been impressive. But Jesus didn't just arrive to tell us how to live. He came to show us and to enact it. And that's what's happening in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Along with an invitation. Do you want a king like that? Do you follow a king like that? Does someone, does anyone in your life speak with that authority over you to bless you, to call you into service of the kingdom of God? Because if Jesus is king, the only natural response is to follow him. So this morning, I want to give you that opportunity to do that. To accept that Jesus has all authority over your life, my life, this church, everywhere. The power and authority of Jesus will lead your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe it enough to confess that before everyone? Do you believe it enough to change the way you live based not on what you think and what you feel or what others think and feel, but on what Jesus wants for you? Do you believe that enough to be buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in a life that's governed by his authority above all others? That's what Matthew wants. That's what we want. And that's what we invite you to do while together we stand and sing this morning. Amen.